Praise the Lord. Amen. Amen. This morning, we're going to uh, slaughter some sacred cows. Hallelujah. Some doctrinal errors that are popular in this hour. We'll be reading here in 2 Timothy chapter 4. This morning we're going to uh, address some errors in general. And then Lord willing, on a Wednesday night, the Holy Ghost permits, we're going to be dealing specifically with Pentecostalism. Amen. Amen. Some traditions and doctrines of men that have basically redefined modern Pentecost. Something foreign, amen, to what God originally intended. Amen? But reading here in Second Timothy, chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. I charge thee therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. Preach the word. Be instant in season, out of season. And incidentally, these are the basic elements of true New Testament preaching. You'll notice these are all things that... Um, have a quote-unquote negative connotation, things that are rejected in this hour. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and doctrine. It's impossible to truly preach without rebuking or correcting, amen, or exhorting, amen. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. Why is that? Because sound doctrine is full of reproof, rebuke and exhortation, amen. But after their own lust shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto fables, amen. I thought here this morning the most dangerous religious myths of our times, the most dangerous religious myths of our time. Father, we thank you, Lord, here today. We gather, Lord God, to hear your word. We ask, Lord, that you would grant us light and illumination and truth. Lord, I pray we would have discernment in these dangerous, perilous last days, that we would be lovers of the truth, Father God, that we would receive the love of the truth, Lord, that we would have the truth of God in the inward parts. And Lord, we would, we would uh, endure sound doctrine, Lord, in these times that we might be the vessel that you've called us to be, that we might avoid that strange woman, Father God, and that we may glorify Christ. We ask it in the name of Jesus. Let everyone say it, amen, and amen. First, I think it's important for us to define our terms here. And uh, the word fable, the English word there, uh, or rather the Greek word that has, is uh, translated fable, literally means a tale or a myth, in other words, opinions that are derived uh, from something other than the Word of God, amen, something other than God's truth. Hence, religious myths or false concepts or notions that though foreign to Scripture have been accepted as orthodox, or in other words, something that men would assume that the apostles actually taught or promoted or established in the early church, but in fact are nothing more than traditions and doctrines of men, amen? There are many such religious yarns in today's professing church. In fact, so ingrained are these errors into the psyche of the modern church, to challenge them is perceived as almost blasphemy. Thus, by most dangerous, and we use that qualifying phrase there uh, in our title here this morning, by most dangerous, we mean on one hand, those spiritual fallacies which do the most violence to the true gospel message. In other words, that misrepresent the character and the nature of God. But on the other hand, are so entrenched in the opinion of the contemporary church that they are considered 
sacred. In fact, even uh, doctrines that people would uh, uh, suggest or assert define the very gospel. You know, I was raised Southern Baptist. And, uh, you know, the main thing that I remember, all the church services that I attended, and uh, literally hundreds, if not thousands, of messages preached in uh, that Baptist church, I don't hardly ever remember being under conviction of sin. But this is one thing that was ingrained in my mind. And that is no matter what you do, you can't lose your salvation. You see, once saved, always. You turn on the radio today and listen to these antinomian preachers like Charles Stanley, amen, Bob George, etc., and so forth. Amen. And, the, you know, the once saved, always saves. That, that is the gospel to them. They concentrate, emphasize these messages, amen, because people have no assurance of salvation because they're not saved, amen, because they're not right with God. There are religious myths, amen, or these are religious myths that undermine the very fundamental doctrines like repentance, faith, lordship, and obedience. How many of you know you're going to be in trouble, amen, if you don't have these things right? If you don't view these things right, it's going to jeopardize your standing with God. Falsehoods that in effect offer spiritual stumbling blocks that essentially hinder men from knowing the true and the living God. As Jesus rebuked the church at Pergamos in the book of Revelations chapter 2, saying, but I have a few things against thee, because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel. Amen. Now, I trust you're familiar with that, that Old Testament story about Balaam and Balak. And what Jesus is doing here, he's taking an Old Testament account and making it a New Testament application. You read there Numbers chapter 22, and essentially Balak is intimidated by God's people, by the children of Israel. Amen. He seeks to commission Balaam to curse what God has blessed. Amen. And Balaam cannot curse. Nobody can curse what God has blessed. Amen. But we read further in the Bible and we find out by implication it's insinuated there, and then it's confirmed by Jesus' words here, amen, that basically Balaam, amen, and I'm just speculating what he uh, perhaps said, I cannot curse God's people, but if you'll somehow infiltrate and leaven God's people where they fall into sin, amen, they're going to fall out of favor with God, and God will be against them. That's exactly, amen, what's happened in this day. Amen. Today's professing church has blindly suffered these doctrinal myths to essentially the undermining of her covenant with God. Because these are doctrines that make provision for the flesh. Provision for the flesh. And so it is. The enemy has used these lies to cripple the church, to damn the world with dead, sin-excusing religious half-truths. Oh, that the church would take heed to the warning of the Holy Ghost in Titus 1 and 14, not giving heed to Jewish fables and commandments of men that turn from the truth. Amen? G.D. Watson said this of, of true preaching. He said, all true preaching of the gospel must consist largely in proclaiming the nature, the purity, and the character of God. It is impossible for men to form any estimation of righteousness or holiness, of experience or practice, except it is furnished by a revelation from the character and conduct of God. The revelation of God through Jesus Christ is our only standard for inner life and outward behavior. It is lamentable to notice what an infinite amount of stuff is palmed off on, the, on this generation as gospel, which has to it no glowing background of the holiness of God. Amen. Profound. 
but true words. Amen. Never truer words spoken than that, especially, amen, about this day. G.D. Watson said that some time ago. Amen. But in this hour, uh, you know, the vast balance of preaching, the vast balance of ministry is lacking in the true revelation of the holiness of God. So in no particular order here this morning, the most dangerous religious myths of our times. Amen. I am pointing out four, beginning with perhaps the most popular. No one can judge. No one can judge. How many of you know that is a lie? Amen. This is a false doctrine. And it's roughly based, amen, on an erroneous interpretation of Matthew chapter 7 and verse 1. Judge not that ye be not judged. Amen. There is perhaps no other verse of Scripture in the Bible more misused, misinterpreted, and misunderstood than Matthew 7 and 1. It is a favorite text, though it be perverted and twisted in the mouth of hypocrites and the devil himself. Even a casual overview of Matthew 7 reveals that Jesus never intended for this to be understood as a universal censor against judgment. And though hypocritical or unequal judgment is indeed condemned. And when you hear someone tell you or someone in response to being preached to or rebuked by the word of God, amen, young preacher, when someone tells you, you can't judge me or judge not, you need to tell them the only judgment forbidden in the Bible is hypocritical judgment. Righteous judgment is even commanded. Amen. But nowhere in the Bible is righteous judgment forbidden. Amen. In fact, the scriptures teach in Psalms 37 and 28, for the Lord loveth judgment. Likewise, throughout the scriptures, God has revealed himself grieved when there is a lack of judgment. Amen. If we're going to have truth, Amen. If there's going to be a distinguishing between the holy and the profane, then there's going to have to be judgment. Amen. We're going to have to make moral absolutes and moral conclusions, amen, to arrive at the truth. So the very thought that we cannot judge at all is self-defeating. Isaiah 59 and 15, yea, truth faileth, and he that departeth from evil maketh himself a prey. And the Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no judgment. In Old Testament Israel, when God raised up judges, amen, there was what? There was deliverance. Amen, there was freedom. There was liberty in Israel. But when there was no judgment, amen, no judges, what happened? There was bondage in the land. If this were not enough, consider that Jesus in the New Testament actually explicitly commands judgment. John 7 and 24, judge not according to the appearance, but judge righteous. You know, what's righteous judgment? According to the Bible. According to the word of God. And finally, the epistles likewise confirm the fact that judgment is an essential exercise of true spirituality. 1 Thessalonians 5, 21 through 22, prove all things. That word means judge. Judge all things. You got a license to judge everything. You don't have a license to judge things hypocritically. You don't have a license to be guilty of something and then to condemn it. Amen. You don't have a license to do that. But you have a license to measure all things by the word of God. Amen. And this is only logical and spiritual. Amen. All this and more, yet the modern professing church foolishly assumes, and listen to me, when you hear people say this, you're talking about blindness. The amazing thing, <clears throat> I'm not talking about just the, you know, the charismatic crowd. I'm not talking about just the denominational group that's twice uh, dead and plucked up by the roots. I'm talking about, amen, conservative, Pentecostal, even so-called holiness people. You, I don't want to judge someone. What, what, a, what an unscriptural thought. Amen. Listen to me. I, I judge everything by the word of God. Somebody say, You're ju- you better believe I'm judging you. 
just like you're judging me. <laughs> we all judge. Well, I mean, the man, you know, went out and killed someone. Like, I don't want to judge him. What kind of foolishness is that? We all are judging. It's unrighteous or hypocritical judgment that God condemns. All this and yet more. The modern professing church foolishly assumes to, that to make moral judgment is unchristlike. They fail to comprehend the utter absurdity of such a proposal. Because that proposal is, first of all, unscriptural, as we've proven here. But it's also illogical. Everywhere you find in the New Testament, let's see off the top of my head, Romans chapter 2, amen, James, in the book of James, and in the gospel. I think that's the only three places, amen, where it really uh, directly deals with judgment. All three, you read them in context, it deals with hypocritical judgment. It's not dealing, amen, with uh, uh, judging things according to the word of God. Amen, the thing about it, uh, this is, is uh, you know, even in the world, I mean, was Hitler evil? Everyone says yes. That's a judgment. They fail to comprehend. This is utter absurdity. First, it's impossible to accurately declare the law of God and preach the gospel divorced from judgment. Amen? Why is this? Law without repercussion is no law at all. It's only a suggestion. Amen? Any, uh, 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 you know, uh, heaven and freedom from sin, the very uh, experience cannot be fully appreciated without a revelation of hell and bondage. As Brother Charlie p uh, pointed out, what's wisdom doing? Amen? She is crying in the streets, amen. She is lifting up her voice to the simpleton, simpletons. And what is she saying? She is saying she's declaring because the beginning of wisdom is to fear God and keep his commandments. That's how God dealt with me. Amen, that's how the Holy Ghost preached to me. He, he didn't preach to me healing. Amen, that wasn't the... I didn't, I, the Holy Ghost didn't visit me, preach to me, but, you know, prosperity. I'll tell you the first words the Holy Ghost gave me. Babe, the, whole, the whole, you know, I was overwhelmed with the thought that I am in trouble with the Holy God. I'm in trouble with the Holy God. Hey, wouldn't any of this, you know, uh, other peripheral issue. Amen. I am a rebel and I need to bow my knee and submit my will to Almighty God. And this is where God deals with the sinner. Amen. He deals with the sinner, not so much on the intellectual level, but on the moral level. And all sinners know. They do know that. They have a conscience. Amen. But it's impossible to declare the gospel or accurately represent the gospel, amen, without preaching the law against sin and the repercussions for transgression against that law, amen. The law is a good thing, the Bible says, if a man use it lawfully, amen, it's not for the righteous, it's for the sinner, amen. Without the law, there is no knowledge of sin, amen. And the law is, what, is a schoolmaster to bring men broken and humble to the Lord Jesus Christ. The law cannot save, amen. The law cannot deliver, but the law brings a man broken and humbled, amen, before that fountainhead of grace, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. And also a kindred subplot or premise of this, you know, judge not, this false sacred cow, is this idea that if it is offensive, it must be unloving. And that's really an unwritten rule that many people live by. You know, they think that Christianity is just being a nice guy. Just, if I'm a real Christian, then everybody is going to think I'm a nice guy. Let me tell you something. They didn't nail Jesus to a tree because he was a nice guy. Although he was the nicest guy that ever existed. He epitomized love. And they nailed love to a tree. They spat in the face of love. They said, crucify love. And they rejected him. Hey, but they're going to reject us. Remember, amen, we're not called to convince men, amen, that we love them. We're only called to love them. Amen? If you truly love men, they're not going to be, they weren't convinced Jesus was love. They had thrown, thrown him a party if they thought. They had a tap to keg. No, no, no. They, they weren't convinced that he was love, but he was love. 
Just because they didn't think he was love doesn't mean he wasn't love. And just because the world doesn't think that you're loving doesn't mean that you aren't loving them. See, our, our highest aim needs to be, amen, to conform ourselves to the scriptures, amen. But this idea, if it's, it's, if it's offensive, oh, then it's unloving. And so we need to seek to be inoffensive. And the Bible says, if I seek to please men, I cannot be the servant of Christ. Secondly, amen, you know, this concept that all judgment is wrong. The second, uh, you know, issue here is it is a spiritual contradiction of the highest order. As all must and do judge. It is inescapable. You know, when you, I, I can remember as a younger Christian and not having this all, you know, sorted out in my mind. And I would see something like I remember Amy Grant when she first came out. And I read a few of her statements or whatever. And I told other Christians, that woman, that's not Christianity. That's not Christian music. Hey, man, that's wicked. Well, they, you know, you, you shouldn't judge her. She's of God. See, her music is of God. God is with her. You know what they failed to realize? And I didn't even realize it at the time. It takes just as much eternal wisdom, amen, to call something of God as it does to say something is not of God. And so if judgment is wrong, then we cannot make any moral conclusions at all. In other words, they can't say TBN, TBN is really of God. They have to say, I don't know. I can't make any judgment. Amen. But it's inconsistent for them to judge that something is of God. Amen. And to denounce, amen, that which they consider is negative when you, when you uh, compare it to the Bible and say that it's not God. See, it's self-defeating. In fact, this precept, as they define it, is impossible to practice or promote without violating the very charge it theoretically establishes. Anytime someone says, you are wrong, the Bible says, judge not. They are practicing judgment. And in fact, they are practicing the judgment that is forbidden. Hypocritical judgment. Because they have to make a judgment to denounce what you're doing. And they are professing by their theory that no one should make any judgment. And then they hypocritically judge to inform you of your error. See where the blindness, the blindness that these lies bring men to? But see, there's deeper implications than this. Unfortunately, the myth of no one can judge has been propagated by the professing church to the delight of Satan. You see, this is the condemnation, that light has come into the world, but men prefer darkness rather than light. Amen. That which reproves, that which uh, exposes, amen, that's divine light. And they hate the light. Amen. So they reject any judgment or any reproof of sin. Well, this is exactly what Satan wants. An atmosphere, amen, where, uh, you know, sin, and compromise in the flesh is never challenged, never confronted, rarely ever brought into the light so it can thrive in the darkness. He has used it to quench and to thwart true spiritual discernment among believers. You know, and really, it's in, in, in this hour, when you mingle with other believers and, uh, and sometimes with genuine believers, it can be intimidating to just apply the Bible. I mean, you know what I'm talking about. You can go to a Bible study or you can be visiting with someone that you would consider as a genuine Christian and they bring up something that is unscriptural and that thought is there. I'm going to be considered unloving if I say something about this. You see, that's, a, that's exactly the atmosphere that the devil wants to promote. Because if it's not challenged and it's not confronted, and you see, it's you're not the 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 the, the second commandment of love that Jesus quotes to love thy neighbor as thyself. He's quoting the law out of Leviticus. You read that commandment in context. It says, "You shall not suffer sin upon your neighbor, but you shall in any wise rebuke him." Love chastens. Love rebukes. The world doesn't define love like that. The world defines love as if you love me, you let me do what I want. If you love me, turn a, turn a deaf ear and uh, close your eyes to anything. Don't criticize me. 
But that's hatred, according to God. You see, deceived sinners likewise have been deceived into believing anyone, and they've been deceived by the pulpit. Anyone who exercises judgment warning them of the consequences of their sin is a hypocrite. That's what they believe. We've, we've heard it all the time. Thou shalt not judge. That's one of the Ten Commandments. <laughs> They've got that as the greatest commandment. Amen. <laughs> what do they say? We've heard them say it all the time. They, they come out on the porch of that glorified whorehouse and try to teach us Sunday school. We point out you are a hypocrite. Look at the hypocrisy. You're here tangled up with whoredom and you're trying to quote the Bible. Well, you're a hypocrite too because you judge. See, an excuse and a justification has been provided. And thus sinners and hypocrites alike use this perversion of Scripture in an attempt to extinguish the light and to cover their sin. Amen, the prophet, amen. There's a new thing under the sun. Amen, this has always been. Amen, and the prophet Amos spoke about this in chapter 5 and 10. He says, they hate him that rebuketh in the gate, and they abhor him that speaketh uprightly. You know, in in, uh, ancient times, when they built a city, many times, they built a defensive wall around the entire city. There was one way in and one way out, and that was called the gate. And if someone wanted to reach the whole city with a message, they stood in the gate, amen, and addressed the city. And as people came in and out, amen, everyone was provided with the information. And so the prophet Amos, amen, I'm sure, sure he was speaking of his own experience experience as he stood in the gate and to reprove, amen, the cities and the places where God had sent him to warn them. They hated him that rebuketh in the gate and abhor him that speaketh uprightly. Amen. It's the same today. They hate judgment, but God loves judgment and God commands judgment. And we have to take that verse and rightly, amen, interpret it. It is hypocritical judgment that is forbidden, not righteous judgment. Secondly, Christians aren't perfect, just forgiven. That's considered orthodox, but it's a lie. You know, Jesus said in Matthew 5 and 48, be therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. Now, though it may be true that no one is perfect in the sense, the full sense, that God is perfect, Because divine perfection is absolute. Do you understand? Amen. God, there's not the slightest flaw in any attribute of God. Amen. God is immutable. Amen. He is not progressing. He is not degenerating. He's never changed. He doesn't have to learn. Amen. He's never made a mistake ever, not even once. That's not the kind of perfection that we're commanded because we don't have the attributes of God. We don't have all power, all knowledge, etc., and so forth. But there is a perfection that we can attain to through grace. Amen. And it cannot be denied because it is commanded. And God would be unrighteous to command us to do what we could not fulfill via grace. Yet the bumper stickers appear to have more authority than God's word as again and again we hear the declaration, no one is perfect. We used to go to these family, uh, and if you go to these uh, family conferences and homeschool conferences where, um, and it's commendable, uh, that you find these things, and we'll talk uh, more about this on Wednesday evening, but um, the homeschool movement and uh, the, the return to the biblical family and a biblical order perhaps may be the, uh, the closest thing to genuine revival in the last decade in America. So I, I, I want to give honor to whom honor is due. In, in many of these circles, there will be many commendable things and truth that you can glean and learn. But for the most part, it will be absence, uh, you know, the absence of Pentecostals, and it would be mostly Calvinists and Baptists or what have you. And, of course, they would not believe you could live free from sin. And it's amazing. I mean, uh, how many times you can go in these circles, and they can be, you know, uh, preaching about the marriage, 
And they'll say, no one's perfect, you know, 25 times in the message. I mean, they have to remind everyone, no one is perfect. Well, if no one's perfect and no one can be perfect, let's just shut this down. Amen. Why are we trying to, why are, we try, why are you trying to tell us to do right? Because we can't do it anyway. Amen. But on and on. Every one of these things you go to, you'll hear people that just, oh, well, no one's perfect. No one's perfect. Amen. That's a lie. Though this may have an appearance of humility, the real motive behind such a statement is often a desire to justify sin and compromise. Oswald Chambers uttered these words, humility before men may be unconscious blasphemy before God. Think about that. Why are you not a saint? He said, it is either that you do not want to be a saint or that you do not believe God can make you one. Amen. And that's the truth. You see, men unconsciously yet intuitively know if anyone can live free from sin, then everyone is obligated to live free from sin. You see, so no one wants to give up that ground that hasn't seen this or rather that hasn't surrendered to this truth of the Bible. Amen. You see, that produces a crisis because it's true for me to, uh, to admit that God commands me to live morally perfect. There's a crisis because I know within myself, I'm not going to be able to do that. Somebody ought to say amen to that. You within yourself cannot, that's supernatural. And it's going to demand that I give my all and that I believe, amen, and that I submit myself fully to God. And if, I'm expo- if I refuse to do that, I'm going to be exposed. So it produces a crisis, and many have not surrendered to that crisis. Ironically, this myth is so contrary to the testimony of Scripture that it's amazing it's viewed with such sacred zeal. Consider for a moment, God himself attributed perfection to several men in the Bible, including Noah, Job, David, and Asa. Now you say, well, I know immediately in my uh, you know, mind, uh, preacher, uh, the Bible talks about these men in sin or sins, particularly since they commit. Indeed, but the moment that God said they were perfect, they were perfect. And they never had to sin, amen? It's possible that a man walk in perfection. And if we say no, then we're arguing with what God said about him. I think I believe what God said about him, amen? Though uh, such men were certainly, would certainly refrain from boasting Amen. As Job 9 and 21, this is what he said. Though I were perfect, yet would I not know my soul, I would despise my life. In other words, moral perfection, amen, could only be attributed to God. Anytime that any of us have walked in moral perfection, as we should, amen, as we are walking in moral perfection even now, it's only by the grace of God. You mean, well, what about if I sinned yesterday? Have you repented? Are you right with God? You know, if you're right with God, you're perfect. (laughs) Amen. If you're right with God, you're morally perfect right now. You're cleansed from all sin, and you're setting your face like flint to walk in obedience, conforming to all the light that you have. That's moral perfection. Amen. But, you know, this thought in this hour is rejected. Also, the Bible speaks generically of the perfect man in several passages of Scripture. For example, Psalms 37 and 37, mark the perfect man and behold the upright, for the end of that man is peace. Moreover, as we've already mentioned, Jesus commanded perfection. Hence, it must be possible through grace. And finally, more perfection is cited many times throughout the epistles. And I could quote verse after verse. And, and I could quote passages that perhaps, even though they don't use the term perfection, amen, they talk about keeping the commandments of God. If any man saith, he knoweth him and keepeth not his commandments, he is a liar and the truth is not in him. You know, many people, you know, they'll say, when you bring up a scripture like that, they'll say, well, that doesn't mean all the commandments. Well, of course it does. He that saith he knoweth him, but doesn't keep 85% of his commandments. 
The point is you cannot be in disobedience to God and love God or know God at the same time. Hebrews 6 and 1, therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on unto perfection. Thus to declare that no one is perfect or perfection is impossible is in direct opposition to the word of God. Dr. A.J. Gordon said this, divine truth as revealed in scriptures seem often to lie between two extremes. If we regard the doctrine of sinless perfection as heresy, we regard contentment with sinful imperfection as a greater heresy. And we gravely fear that many Christians make the apostles' word. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, the unconscious justification for a low standard of Christian living. It were almost better for one to overstate the possibilities of sanctification in his eager grasp after holiness than to underestimate them in his complacent satisfaction with a traditional unholiness. Certainly, it is not an edifying spectacle to see a Christian worldling throwing stones at a Christian perfectionist. Amen. It's obvious Satan has promoted the no one is perfect myth as an affront to the delivering power of Jesus Christ. You know, my Bible says all things are possible to him that believeth. Amen. Through Christ, I'm more than a conqueror. And God has commanded me to refrain, to, uh, to forsake, to uh, turn away from sin. This is the doctrine of repentance. Repentance is to turn away from all sin. I can't even be born again. I can't even be regenerated if I'm not making covenant with God to turn away from all sin. And yet men, by their implied theology, are planning on sinning. Is that consistent with repentance? So if, I, so if I was visiting here this morning with you and I was a known, a known drug addict, a drug dealer, and you brought me into church, amen, and under the preaching of the gospel, you could see that I was convicted, amen, and after the uh, service at the altar call, you uh, inquired or you prepared to uh, give your life to Jesus, and, and I nodded and you brought me forward and the preacher dealt with me and I wept and what have you and prayed a sinner's prayer, and then we got in the car and went home with you and your excitement, amen, uh, Brent got born again and he's going to be a new creature in Christ, and I can't wait till we get home to your house. I'm going to go in there and help you flush all that crack down the commode. What? That's how I made my living, man. I ain't flushing no crack down. I spent thousands of dollars for that crack. Wouldn't you think my conversion is spurious? That's the vast majority of the church world. When you say, turn away from your sin, well, nobody can stop sinning. We all sin every day. You're planning on sinning. This leads us to our next dangerous myth. And it's very closely related. All sinners. Everyone sins. Everyone is a sinner. Amen. You know, you're not a sinner if you're born again here today. You're a saint. That's what the Bible refers to you. You're not an unbeliever. You are a believer. Matthew 1 and 21 says, and she, speaking of Mary, shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Now, the implication, much of the church world interprets that to mean that we are saved in our sin. In other words, sin no longer affects us. And there's, uh, you know, the gospel has been essentially turned on its head by antinomianism. And this, listen to me, this is the pervasive and common thought in the American church in this hour. That the grace of God changes the nature of sin and not the nature of the sinner. Because they basically assume I can sin, but it doesn't kill me. See, that, that's saying that the grace of God, the atoning work of Christ has changed, has gutted sin of its debilitating and killing power. But the Bible says, amen, the wages, and this is written to Christians, the wages of sin is death. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. Well, the grace of God didn't change the nature of sin. The grace of God is to change the nature of the sinner. 
Now, this myth, like the others, is a scriptural perversion rooted in half-truth. Indeed, the Bible teaches sin in both principle and behavior is a universal human condition. Everyone has sinned. Somebody say amen. We have all sinned in the past. We don't deny that. But we know like, for example, in 1 John chapter 1, 8 through 10, this is uh, one of the most uh, quoted passages uh, to attempt to uh, support this myth that everyone sins. No matter who you are, no matter how much grace you have, you're still a sinner. There's still hidden pockets. Now, can you fall into sin? Absolutely you can. Can you, uh, uh, do you uh, as a young Christian need to grow and advance, amen? And as you receive light, do you receive greater accountability? Yes, And every time you receive light, you're immediately to be conformed to that light. But if you are doing, if you're conformed to all the lights you have, you are morally perfect. And that's what you must be as a Christian. That is the normal Christian experience. To be conformed to the truth that you have. 1 John 1, 8 through 10, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. I don't have any sin. If you're born again here, you don't either right now. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all sin, our all unrighteousness. Now, John just said, amen, if we confess our sins, we won't have any sin. Is he deceived and has no truth in him? If we say that we have not sinned, we all agree we have sinned. We make him a lie and the word is not in us. Now, what does this mean? If we say that we have no sin, this is essentially the Greek uh, noun for sin. And this is speaking of the principle of sin. This would be to deny the sin nature. Amen. That men by his own personal transgression has been corrupted. Amen. We don't deny that. Amen. But then when the term sin is used in uh, verse 10, if we say that we have not sinned, this is the Greek verb. Amen. For sin, meaning action or behavior, we make him a liar. We're not denying that we have sinned. Amen. So this is not a passage, and particularly, uh, you know, I always consider First John the antinomian nightmare. How that you would try to cite uh, the epistle of First John to prove that everybody must sin when it says, "He that is born of God doth not commit sin, for his seed remaineth in him, and he cannot sin, for he's born of God." Whosoever abideth in Christ sinneth not. However, the Bible never teaches Christians are sinners. On the contrary, the Bible says in Romans 6, 1 and 2, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin? That grace may be. What's wrong with the apostle Paul? Everybody sins. Why would he? What are you saying, apostle? Like we can't, you know, we have the ability to cease from sinning. Now, God forbid, he said, how shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? The Bible says we are to reckon ourselves dead unto sin. But when people begin to say everyone must sin, they're very much saying they're alive to sin. The Bible says by faith you're to conclude, reckon yourself dead by sin, not in your own strength or power, but by identifying, amen, by believing, by your union with the crucified and risen Lord. Furthermore, the scriptures declare he that committed sin is of the devil. Everyone knows the ultimate aim of God in regards to sin is to rid his creation of all rebellion. How do you know? There's no sin in heaven. There's no sanctified power in death. Amen? Amen. You're not going to become a saint just because you died. If that were true, then all sinners would become saints when they died. You see, the blood, the gospel, the truth makes free. And you can be free in this life. Amen? Amen? 
Make no mistake, the New Testament clearly, irrefutably, and without contradiction points to Jesus who can deliver us from all sin. Likewise, all true Christians must by faith stand on the ground of full deliverance if they are to realize victory over sin. If you can't believe, amen, that you can be delivered from all sin, then you don't have any ground to believe that you can be delivered from any sin. If you believe every, you know, if someone believes, I mean, everybody has to do a little sin. Then when the sodomite comes to you and says, I'm bound by perversion. Will your God deliver me? You'd have to say, be mine. But everybody has to sin a little bit. Maybe you'll have to be a pervert. See, anytime someone comes to you and says, will God deliver me? You know what most Christians, of course, all Christians would say, of course. You know why? Intrinsic, it's intuitively they know. The Bible promised deliverance from all sin. But if you don't believe that you can be delivered from all sin, then you don't have any ground to be delivered from any sin. To suggest that Christ in his finished work at Calvary cannot deliver us from sin is blasphemy. It is an affront to the gospel, and it really is. It's really an affront, and I know some people are unconsciously doing that. But you think about that. Amen. God's son, his blood, divine blood shed. Amen. That you and I could be redeemed. And people say it's not powerful enough to deliver you from sin. And that, in essence, makes sin the most powerful thing in the universe, trumping the very power of God. And yet this antinomian concept is so pervasive, it is rare to find a professing Christian anywhere who believes otherwise. Sadly, this unscriptural view has done great harm to the cause of Christ, both in discipleship and evangelism. Amen. If no one, listen to me, it stands to reason. If no one can truly be free from sin, and this is what people believe, then no one has the right to condemn sin. And that's true. If everybody sins a little bit, then the heathen are right. You know, I'm, I work at the Illusions Club, but you've got your problems too. Who are you to tell me anything? Hey, man, this is my problem, and you've got problems. We're all in the same boat. You see, that's not true. Sadly, today, obedience to God's word is seen as legalism and a zeal for biblical accuracy is equated to Phariseeism. Amen. This leads us to our final myth. These things are dangerous. And they're like a canker that eat away at true orthodoxy and stability in the spirit and in the church. And when you believe these things and you promote them, you begin to see. How these things have so undermined and so, so brought a reproach and really has weakened. Amen. These things are, you, you see, we can believe, when we believe all these things, at least we believe them hypothetically. I would hope that we believe them in reality. But we still need revival. We have needs. So I'm not suggesting just believing this or just confessing these things, you know, is going to solve all our problems. But I am saying if you don't believe these things, if you have not embraced these biblical truths, amen, then the best that you can hope for is being spiritually anemic. Because if you don't believe, for example, you can live free from sin, I don't care. You can grit your teeth. You can fast and pray. You, 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 can, do, you can come to church every day. You can memorize the whole Bible. You're not going to live free from sin. Because the only way you live free from sin is by faith. In the finished work of God. Not by human effort. And if you don't believe you can do it through grace, that's unbelief. You know, if a man comes to you and he's been a gross sinner and you preach the gospel to him and he looks at you and he says, I've done too much evil to be forgiven. Can he be forgiven? Huh? No. Can't be forgiven. As long as he believes that. Can he be forgiven while he denies that it's possible to be forgiven or that God will forgive him? No. He has to believe what God has said. He has to believe that he can be forgiven through the atonement of Christ. It's the same principle. 
If you don't believe that you can be set free from all sin, then, friend, you're never going to be set free from sin. Now, there's another side to that, as we know. New Testament holiness is not teaching that it's impossible. Did you hear me? Impossible for a Christian to sin. That's not what New Testament holiness is teaching. We, we, we know it's very possible to sin. Amen. But rather it's possible that you not sin through grace. Amen. If any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, who is the propitiation not only for our sins but the sins of the whole world. Praise God for that. When people ask me, will you believe in sinless perfection? You, you preach that you can live free from sin. Are you living free from sin? At this moment, sir, I am free from sin through the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how I could say that, amen, before you this morning in truth and not be deceived. My freedom from sin is in Christ and through Christ. Both in state, amen, both in state and experience. It's not just a legal declaration, it is experiential. But when people ask me, you're preaching sinless perfection, you're preaching, and I don't like that term, a sinless perfection. I, I would prefer moral perfection, Christian holiness. You're a holiness preaching, preacher, you're preaching, you can live free from sin. Are you living free from sin? Well, at this moment, I'm free from sin. But since I've been born again, to my shame, I must admit that I have sinned. But I never had to sin. It's not a reproach or not a slight to the gospel. All provision was given to me through the gospel that I wouldn't sin. But I have sinned to my shame. And I had to repent and get up and walk in the truth. And if they say, well, could you sin in the future? I'm not planning on sinning. I'm planning on never sinning again. I've made covenant with God. I've turned away from all sin, living free from sin. If God shows me something that I don't know right now, I'm planning to conform to that as soon as I receive light. Should I fall? I have every intention to repent. Amen. The Bible doesn't say when you fall. It says if you fall. That's the biblical position. The last myth. The redefining of the religious hypocrite. What really constitutes hypocrisy in this hour? Jesus said, well, hath Isaiah prophesied of you hypocrites. As it is written, this people honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. That is the perfect, that, that's Jesus' definition. That's a mark or an attribute of hypocrisy. Amen, someone that can talk, but can't walk. Or rather someone that talks but refuses to walk. But the new view of the religious hypocrite is different from Jesus' view. Let us for a moment consider the deeper implications of the culmination and acceptance of these religious myths. Judge not. No one is perfect. Everyone is a sinner. Amen. Even those under grace, everyone has to sin. Amen. Consider when you take all of these ideas and, and you take this, basically this false foundation, what kind of house is going to be established on that erroneous ground? You see, it stands to reason that if no one can judge, if none is perfect and all sin, then those who believe and declare otherwise are the worst type of hypocrites. Right? If, if, if you believe it's orthodox, that in the Bible, and this is what people believe, if there's anything we know, everyone has to sin. That's what they believe. I mean, I've talked to people who say, you need to turn away from us. Oh, well, yeah, no one can quit sinning. Well, sir, you can quit sinning. Oh, oh, grab their ears and rent their coat. Blasphemy. Oh, I know you're, I know you're a heretic now. That's what they believe. And, and, and when you tell uh, people that, that's just, uh, a lot of the times the way they'll react. Oh, I know you're deceived now. But you see, because they believe that it's a, it's a foundational truth. Everyone has to sin. And if you're telling me you don't sin, and then you're judging me for my sin, what kind of hypocrite are you? Hence a new definition of hypocrisy. 
all rooted in the paralyzing unbelief of this generation. Today, few believe holiness is possible. Hence, we are claiming the impossible, even the heretical. They believe there must be an explanation for us to claim these things. And so they must come to the conclusion that we are insincere, that we are lying, and that we are misrepresenting our experience. It's hard to respect someone when you believe that. Hey, but now I'm not called to go around and try to prove all this. I'm quite, it's, it's not my fault they're deceived. It's their fault. Amen? I just need to keep living the Bible and preaching the Bible. Not, not saying that we couldn't try to explain ourselves or preach the truth to people so they could understand, but you know how, how that goes over a lot of times. We do meet people that are sincere. We do meet people that are born again, that hear the Scripture. Let me tell you something. If Jesus is a man's Lord, when you begin to quote the Bible to him, amen, that word which represents Christ, a way a man re- re- responds to the Word of God is the way that he responds to Christ. And if he won't bow the knee to the Word of God, then Jesus is not his Lord. So we've met people that have been very antagonistic to these truths, but when you begin to quote the Bible to them, then they're like, oh, well, I need to pray about this. Because, you see, they bear witness. My sheep hear my voice. So I'm not suggesting we shouldn't try to teach people, patiently try to instruct people in righteousness. But I'm saying we're not under the obligation. Amen. In other words, it's not our fault that the carnal mind, amen, and these people in sin, of course, are seeking because they're obviously biased toward God. You see, in the same sense that the atheist is intellectually dishonest to excuse his rebellion, the religious hypocrite is spiritually dishonest and mishandles the word of God to excuse he's got his religious reasons why he can continue in sin. Remember, Jesus claimed to be holy. He claimed to be a son of God, sent from God, and religion vehemently opposed him. We know that he was truly God. We know that he was sinless. But to them, he was a man. And it's the same position. We're really in the same position, although we, of course, are not God. And we are, we are not the only begotten son of God. But we are sons of God, and we do represent Jesus Christ as the body of Christ. And we are going to face the same opposition on the same ground. In John 10 and 33... Amen. In accusing Christ and condemning him, the Jews answered and said, For a good work we stone thee not, but for blasphemy, because that thou being a man makest thyself God. And that's the same thing that they tell us when we say that we're living free from sin. Amen. That's blasphemy. Only God is free from sin. Amen. But what's the biblical definition of hypocrisy? The word hypocrite is used 30 times in the King James Bible. There is not one single occasion, either in the Old Testament or the New Testament, where it's used to describe men who claim through Christ that they are free from sin. Not once. Not one time. On the contrary. And listen. In every case where that word is used, both in the Old and the New Testament, it addresses rather those who claim to be lovers or worshipers of God, yet who remain in their sin. You see, the biblical position is this. If we're in Jesus, then we must, according to spiritual logic and the scriptures, we must claim to be free from sin. And, you know, really, even the antinomians believe this because they believe positionally, positionally, you know, God doesn't see me. He sees the blood. He doesn't see my sin. He sees the blood. So positionally, they believe they're free from sin anyway, just by some kind of theological magic wand. They can be in adultery, and God doesn't see it. So if we're in Christ, we must claim to be free from sin. However, if we're in sin... We must never assume that we are secure in Christ. That's a biblical position, amen? But you see, in this hour, it's exactly opposite. They've turned this, the biblical definition of hypocrisy, they've totally turned it on its head, amen? And moreover, listen to this, both in the original languages... 
both Hebrew and Greek. Notice the emphasis. In Hebrew, the word that's translated into the English word hypocrite means a man who is defiled, greatly polluted, profane, corrupted in a moral sense by sin. In the New Testament, the Greek word translated hypocrite means an actor under an assumed character, a disassembler. See, an actor is someone who convinces you that they're a vampire, a police officer, a detective, an ape, a ghost, you know, a lot of different things, but in real life, that's not what they are. In the New Testament, you see hypocrite is someone who with their mouth and by their ability to disassemble, their ability to facade, their ability to deceive, to play like they're a Christian, but in real life, they're not. You shall know a tree by its fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit. That's an absolute. Neither can a bad tree bear good fruit. Therefore, in other words, Jesus said, this is an absolute. Because if it wasn't like that, you couldn't look at someone and say, well, I mean, sometimes bad trees do bear good fruit. So I can't know if that's one of those times. Or sometimes, hey man, a a bad tree or a good tree bears bad fruit. So I can't really know. No, no, no. You can always know. Therefore, every tree that bringeth forth not good fruit shall be hewn down and cast into the fire. Ye shall know a tree by its fruit. Which is simply telling us we cannot live in sin and at the same time be right with God. Amazingly, this is exactly the opposite in today's view. Everyone sins. No one's perfect. So everyone is professing to love God and saying they love God with their mouth, but their fruit is opposite. That is, listen to me now. Much of the gospel preached across pulpits in America this morning is unconsciously teaching people to be religious hypocrites instead of to be real Christians. Any gospel that does not demand that you confess and forsake all sin is a false gospel. Again, the enemy has cleverly promoted these spiritual fables to harden men's hearts against the true declaration of the word of God. Each of these lies offer a perceived justification or excuse, and all the better even from God. An excuse from God. If you're excused by the principle, amen, it doesn't matter what the teacher says. It doesn't matter what everyone else says. The principle said, I'm all right. See, in their mind, this is an excuse from God to sin. And it's a refuge from the demands that the Holy Ghost and the Word of God make upon the conscience of men to forsake all sin, to give all, to forsake all, and to follow Christ with everything they have. First John 4 and 5, they are of the world. Therefore speak they of the world, and the world heareth them. Amen. Let's stand here this morning. May, with the, may we with the apostle Peter declare... For we have not followed cunningly devised fables. Amen. The most dangerous mess of our time. That's what we face in this hour. Amen. We know that these are lies. But let's make sure that we don't believe them. That we don't practice them. That we don't communicate that to our children. Amen. But that we represent the truth. Why don't you lift your hands here this morning. Just love him. Thank him for the truth. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Ask him for a renewed mind. Thank him for the washing of the water of the word. Let the word of God wash away every preconceived notion, every false idea about God. Let the word of God reign in our hearts. Let our doctrine, let our theology, let our views. Lord, we know if our views are about you and your Christ and your word is not true, Lord, that there's going to be a corresponding spiritual problems in our life. And Father, we do believe you, Lord. We know within ourselves we cannot do your will apart from your grace. 
And Father, I pray in the name of Jesus, we do want your judgment, Lord God. We invite the light, Lord, in our own life. And we know even above, Lord, us judging someone else, we want you to judge us, Lord. We want to be compared to Christ and Christ alone, Father. We want to be conformed to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, Lord, we do agree, Lord, with your word. We look to Christ and him crucified. And Lord, we know that the power of the gospel can make us free, that the truth can set us free from all sin. We believe you. We stand in that place. Lord, cleanse us from all iniquity, Father God. Teach us thy ways and teach us thy commandments, Lord. Sanctify us with thy word. Thy word is truth. Conform us, Lord God, in every way to the character and the nature of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, I pray that, Lord, there'd be no hypocrisy among us. Lord, that what we say would be what we are. We ask it in the name of Jesus. Let everyone say it, amen and amen. Give Jesus a hand clap of praise here this morning. Lord willing, on Wednesday night, we're going to deal with Pentecost. Amen. Or rather, we're going to deal with Pentecostalism. The things in this hour have come in and basically perverted what Pentecost really is. Amen. Praise the Lord. Six o'clock tonight, come back, seek the Lord, pray. Amen. Brother Bob, would you dismiss us with prayer? God bless you. We love you. Amen. Hug someone as you go. We will see you, Lord willing, this evening.